Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 908 with Liz Solomon Dwyer. I think that it's uh, when people get on interviews, they sometimes are just like, I made it. I did it. And it was great. And then it was a little bit challenging, but like we made it through the end. And it's like, okay, what about the dirty stuff? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full-service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Beyond MyRestaurantCFO's understanding of all the things that ill and plague a restaurant, MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. My Restaurant CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be a guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. Take action and go to MyRestaurantCFO.com slash unstoppable and... When you use that link, you will get a one-hour consulting session with the founder and partner, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder of King David Tacos, Liz Solomon Dwyer. Liz, are you feeling unstoppable today? <laughs> I 
yes, I think is the right answer, right? There is no <laughs> right answer, but you seem pretty unstoppable. You've been helping us out, get set yeah. up, and uh, I think you're just ready to rock and roll. I can't wait I'm for ready. this. Yeah, you are. So I, I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, when you first when you first asked me for that, I don't know if it was like so motivational and inspirational, but the first thing that came to mind um, is that if it was easy, everybody would be mm, doing it. Why did you choose to go with that one? Why, why do you think that's so near and dear to your heart? It's near and dear to my heart because it's how I think I get through the very difficult times when you question, is this too difficult? Yeah. Um, Two is something telling me that it should be not this hard or I should be doing something completely different or I should stop doing this altogether. Um, it, it's maybe a, I don't know, maybe it's something that people who have Stockholm syndrome tell themselves. No, I'm, I'm I don't know. I mean, it's because it, it's true. I think if it was, if it was easy, then everybody would be doing it. Right. It's like, sometimes you forget that what, what you're doing is like pretty extraordinary and that it's going to be hard. Yeah. Um, and that just will keep me going. It's, yeah. And I think it's important to reflect on the fact that you're right. This is not easy work. It's mm-hmm. hard work. And if you've been doing it for a while and you're still going, like stop to take the time to like celebrate that. Yeah. Because I think we're always so focused on the future and the present and where we want to be versus where we are. And we forget where we came from. Yeah. You know, and I think you're a great example of that now with 50 locations across. Oh, actually about 80 now, but yeah. Oh, excuse me. Wow. 80 retail partner (laughs) locations and our own locations. That's amazing. And and you guys started in 2000, I think I saw 2015 is when you kind of made the decision in 2017. 2015, I made the decision just the end of the year. And then 2016, we sold our first taco. So we just turned six this month or last month, June. Um, And I think I sold like, you know, like two orders in June. So, but technically (laughs) that's when it started. Um, and then our first, like our first carts were opened in 2017. So 2016 was all catering. And then 2017, September, 2017, um, and November, 2017, we opened our first two cart locations. Beautiful. I can't wait to get into that, but let's go back even further to how did you get to this point where you want to open your own restaurant? Oh, um, I mean, if you, you know, going way, 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 way back, I mean, I always had a love of food and food was very important in my family and it was really important to my dad, who the company is named after. Um, I loved food. I think in my mind, I toyed around with, do I, would I want to open a restaurant? But I knew I was like, there's the career path that I'm on. The things that I'm doing are not putting me there. And I also knew that I was, I knew it was very hard to do that. And I was like, I don't know that that's what I want to do. Um, So just growing up, like being immersed in, in food and having entertaining and, and eating as a, as a group and as a family be a major part of my life, um, that kind of was a core piece of who I am. Mm. Um, and then when I was working in advertising, so I moved from Austin where I grew up to, um, to New York in 2006, I worked in advertising for 10 years. And at the end of that 10 years, I was kind of becoming less and less in love with my job. But I was like, maybe I can save it if I go work 
for a food brand or um, combined your passions. Yeah, like yeah. I really wanted to work for Fresh Direct. <laughs> I didn't try that hard. I mean, I didn't like look into it. But I was like, if I let's see, I was at this last agency, and I was like, if this doesn't work out, then maybe I'll like reach out to Fresh Direct Marketing. But I think they're like located in the Bronx, and I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same thing with me being a doctor. I'm like, I, I guess I didn't want it that bad because I didn't want to go to school that long. Um, so, so going back to when you're in high school, right, yeah. where you got to choose a path, which I think it's crazy that we put as much pressure on young kids to choose a path yeah. at the age of 17, 16 years yeah. old. Like you have any freaking clue what you want to do for the rest of your life, let alone what you're actually good at as a person, yeah. right? Anyway, don't get me started on that. Yeah. What? Why advertising? What were you doing? What, what was What was the appeal, the draw to advertising? I had fallen in love with advertising when I was um, in fourth grade. I knew I wanted to either be a pediatrician or work in advertising. I don't know where I got it. Maybe because my dad had majored in advertising okay. and I just like knew about it. I, I don't know. Fourth grade seems a little early, but it's I knew. It's appealing to me too. I see the appeal. Yeah, but I knew that. And then in eighth grade, I made a trip to New York with my school and I fell in love with Times Square, which is a typical like tourist story. You know, and now it's like a nightmare, but for a New Yorker, but I, I loved all of the brands. I always loved fonts. Like as soon as a new Microsoft word package would come out, I would just go through and type out every single font. Like look what at all nerd. of, I was a total nerd. <laughs> I loved like print shop. I loved like all of the, I loved making signs. I, you know, so I just loved, I loved brands. I remember reading the back of all of my shampoo bottles and like noticing, I was like, Procter and Gamble seems to own all of these shampoos. <laughs> What's going on? And so I was like, Past digging the show, a little nod to Procter and Gamble. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, so it was, um, definitely like, I just was interested in how it all worked. I was interested in the business of advertising. I was interested in what advertising could do for brands. And I really also loved the beauty of advertising. I loved Times Square because it was sparkly and loud and colorful and bright. And all these brands looked so wonderful. And, um, so that was when in 1998 is when I was like, I'm going to move to New York when I graduate college. And no, I wasn't even in high school yet, but I was like, I'm going to go to high school. Then I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to go to New York. My parents were like, sure, honey, go for it. You know? <laughs> so what's the appeal to New York? I loved it. Uh, that same trip, 1998, um, with my school was, um, I just loved the grit of it. Honestly, I had like a pretty kind of traumatizing experience in Times Square, two traumatizing experiences. I've had my gloves stolen during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and it was freezing. And this, I saw this woman with them. I was like, that's my, those are my gloves. And she was like, no, they're not. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, and my hands are freezing the whole parade. And then also we were taking a picture in Times Square and I backed up and like accidentally stepped on um, a, house uh i guess we don't say homeless but you know someone without a house um in the who was sleeping on the street and i was like really upset by it um because you don't really see that in texas but i just felt from that maybe not 98 yeah (laughs) but you see it a lot now yeah 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 um well we you know i was very sheltered in my upbringing in austin so um but you don't step on people in Austin. They're not, but There's I enough felt space where you can walk around. Right. And so I felt, but I just felt like it was very real. I felt very in touch with humanity, like in New York. And I felt it was, um, the energy was just more in line with where I wanted to be. And I knew that because then I wanted to work in advertising, that was the pinnacle. And my, also my dad's mother grew up here. I do have family, um, 
for in the in the area like they immigrated through new york um some stayed some left and went to the south for some reason so i mean <laughs> as somebody who spent 10 years almost a decade mm-hmm. in advertising i know you spent some time um was it in, t- in 06 you joined is it Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Thank you very much. Uh, You're there for a big chunk of your career, three Mm -hmm. years. Um, You moved on to Taxi. You spent about two years there, and then you were at Red, what was it? Red Red Peak Peak for another four years. Mm -hmm. In this time, where would you say you grew the most as somebody in the field of advertisement? I would say it's funny. I actually talked about this with our director of operations yesterday. I don't know why we were. Perfect time. Ogilvy was 100% the biggest part of my business foundation and my like, you know, business acumen, whatever I learned in advertising. I will say I studied advertising in in school, which people will say you don't need to and you definitely don't, but it definitely helped. And UT Austin had a great program, has a great program. Um, But Ogilvy was just really awesome structure. There's so many things also wrong with it. You know, the way there that why obviously I left for a reason, but for the most part, it was an excellent experience. Um, both like I met all of my New York friends there pretty much. Um, not all if, if anyone hears this, some of you I met outside of Ogilvy. Um, but, uh, it was just a really, the commu- the atmosphere there, the environment there was great. There was a standard of excellence that was great. Um, and there, I had a great client. Um, I was working on the IBM account and there were just awesome opportunities and ways to really challenge myself. And I got to do things there as like a 22, 23, 24 year old that I wouldn't have gotten to do at other agencies. And even though it wasn't considered cool at all, and I still probably is not considered cool. You don't really need cool. Doesn't get you everywhere. So, um, it was in retrospect, very cool. Yeah. So in all these experiences, where do you like, Give us some lessons that you think most stuck with you as far as what did you learn? What were the key lessons that you learned that you that you applied the most when you decided to break off on your own and open King David Tacos? Um, th- thoroughness, I think, is what I learned um, and integrity in in advertising. Um, and that a lot came from Ogilvy, not to say it wasn't, I mean, at Taxi and Red Peak, everyone was thorough and had integrity. But I think that like, because of the, with the level of work that we were doing at, at Ogilvy with that level of client, like you just had like the way this applies is okay. So when I was starting my company, I could have just started selling tacos out of my kitchen, but I didn't, you know, yeah. because that wasn't legal. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that that's always the right answer. There's definitely some things wrong with the laws too, but, um, I just learned how to like be patient and take steps and, and just go build the right foundation because it didn't matter if you, you know, got a cool hot account that like, you know, was going to pay you millions of dollars. Like it was better to have something steadfast and long-term that was built on trust. Like the relationship that, um, my client at Ogilvy had, uh, with Ogilvy and, that was an and that was an example of how I wanted to do business. So how do you, let's get into this? I think this is so important today, especially today, building relationships, building business relationships on trust, this idea of integrity mm-hmm. and thoroughness. So how do you do that? How do you build a relationship on trust? You trust each other. No, I mean it has to be a two way street, and that's something I definitely have struggled with. Um, Give me an example of how you've struggled with that in this business. Um, 
you know, I'm even like currently kind of struggling with it because I feel like I have some, we all are. Yeah. I have, there are relationships. I guess it can be just so much more fleeting in food. You know, it's like, it's just down to the bottom line. And, and part of me totally understands that. And then part of me is like, but shouldn't we be working together on this? And this idea of like not being like being partners, people throw the word partner around a lot, but they don't act like a partner necessarily. Um, they'll just toss you as soon as it's convenient. And it's 100%. It's about money. This is like, this is why are we here? We're here to make money, to build successful businesses but it kind of goes hand in hand. Like you won't be successful if you don't truly trust the person you're in business with, you're not going to get the most out of them. And if it doesn't work out, you, you both can walk away being like, listen, this wasn't the right partnership, but to not have that foundation of trust and like knowing that the other person's going to try to work it out with you is, is tough for me. And so that kind of feeling of like, it could all come crashing down any moment is, is hard to reconcile. Yeah, But it's not just, trust is also trust with clear expectations Mm -hmm. of what each person is going to bring to the table so I think that's where the integrity comes into it like this is what I said I'm going to do this is what you said you're going to do and together we're going to go here and I think people don't when when there's an issue with trust being broken was the expectation clearly communicated in the beginning so maybe your your internalized expectation might be different than their internalized expectation so there's things we can do to help maintain that level of trust yeah right um so you also said it's a two-way street what do you mean by that well there's a lot of relationships like vendor and supplier uh, you know vendor and customer and it goes like between us, the people who give us our materials to who we sell them to, whether it's customers or other businesses, um, they have to trust us and we have to trust them. Like, and there has to be communication both ways. And it is the same thing with like client relationships. The best client relationships I had are clients that were open and honest and built trusting I wouldn't say friends, you know, you can be friends, but you're really not friends. Like you're in business together, but you can build a trusting business relationship that you feel like you're getting the full story from the other person and you can, you know, they trust you to not be selling them a crock of shit basically, you know? So those that didn't always happen in advertising and those were not good relationships and not longstanding relationships. Yeah, And the reason why that, that struck a vein with me when you said it's two way street is I think that, I believe that to, to get trust, you got to give trust. Yes. You gotta, and that's the hard part. Yeah. That's the part that I struggle with um, is I feel like if my hands aren't on anything, then it won't be done to the expectation, to the integrity that I want things done. Yeah. So everything has to funnel through you. But if you're doing that, if you're not, if you're not relinquishing control because you don't trust people to do things a certain way, then yeah. that's on you. you know, yeah. And that I think extends like more to like the employee, employee, employer relationship more than probably, um, you vendors know, the people, yeah. Like vendors and, and customers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but 100%, that's probably one of the biggest challenges of being a, an owner operator who also used to do everything is like yeah. me relinquishing, control and trust and letting the system go. I think we've made some strides there, but it definitely is, is hard to, to do that. And, but necessary, as you point out, to let people take ownership. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, we're at a point now that I love when people on our team take ownership of things and make them better than I could. And that's, that's the most exciting 
that's been the most exciting thing to see too so in our back, most recent yeah, place. Going back to Ogilvy, am I saying yeah. that correctly? Ogilvy. Ogilvy yeah. I don't know why I'm struggling Ogilvy. with that Because <laughs> it looks like it should be like Ogilvy because it looks like it's yeah. like an adverb, but it's not. Yeah. So how do they teach you about trust and uh, communication and all these things, integrity? Give me By example, I think that like, you know, there were, there was just an expectation of professionalism there. Like you didn't get nasty. You do. I'm sure people, if people are listening who work there, I'm sure nasty emails have flown, but like, I just, you just didn't talk that way to people. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I think they did a great job of hiring and, and everyone there who was in leadership set an example of how to, at least in my, on my team, um, of, how to conduct yourself and how to interact. And it's totally not to say it's like, you know, rose colored glasses. There were definitely challenges and not great personnel experiences, but for the most part, um, it's just the expectation the organization set. So describe the work you were doing. Um, at, at Ogilvy. Yeah. <laughs> well, my favorite is that I used to manage the, the production budget for, all of IBM, which was like $25 million. And I was like, you know, 23 year old, but I was managing it to like, at the end of the year, everything was reconciled within like a 75 cent difference. Um, and that was working with other teams to get in their billing and stuff. And that was, um, that was fun. Um, a lot of like just organization of, uh, different TV ads going out, making sure things are labeled properly. Like uh, someone else would do that, but you're ultimately like kind of funneling it back to the client or like you're, you're ultimately in my role as account management was facilitating all of those relationships between creative and production and the media and then the client and just like making sure that everybody had what they needed when they needed and how they wanted it. And the reason I ask these questions is to get at the skills you would be picking up yeah. during this time that apply today. And I can't imagine, I mean, as a restaurant tour, like how organized you, know, you are essentially or constantly yeah. managing production. I definitely, yeah, you're definitely, you're constantly managing production and 100% my organization skills and ability to manage a bunch of shit at the same time was, was key. Like so, I always, I, I couldn't have started this, even if I had the idea five years in, which I did, I couldn't have started it five years. I needed more time. Like dealing with difficult situations, um, honing my prioritization skills, like dealing with different people, um, you know, yeah. Dealing with disappointment, like all, all of those things helped me prepare. <laughs> so like, give us some, some specifics. How do you deal with difficult people? How do you, what, like, I want to pull some like life lessons out of this. Yeah. How do I deal with difficult people? Where are they coming from? Are they, <laughs> they employed by me or are they people I deal with daily? Um, I think if I come at it from like a, a client perspective, like I've definitely had clients in advertising just be flat out rude or dismissive. And that has happened to me here. And, um, I don't know. I think you just remember that it's business. And I have to remind myself that a lot because I do tend to be a very personal person. I take, I'm very, I'll take it personally. I'll get very emotional. I'll get very like caught up in it. Like, you know, or like feeling like it was a personal attack or something like that. But I remind myself often, like, it's not about me. They don't know me. And, um, and it's just business. Yeah. Uh, that, that has helped me as well. This idea of removing yourself from the equation, yeah. not making it personal, uh, especially when I'm about to go do like a big interview or something yeah. or like, I'm worried. I'm like, listen, like 
it's not about me. Yeah. Like my job, like my job is to, to serve the listener. It's right. Like when you take the focus off of you, when you, when you remove yourself from the equation and you just look at the objective and yep. the mission, it helps so much to like, yeah. just remind, like to, like it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you feel really. It's a matter of, am I doing what I said I'm going to do? Yeah. Right. Am I, am I doing my job? And do I feel good about what I, what I did? Like, do I feel like I did everything I could to make that a better experience? Did I, did I do everything I could to make that relationship work? And if so, like, you know, then you can, if you can walk away feeling like you had integrity in the situation, then I think then I think you've won. Mm-hmm. And that's another, obviously in customer service and client services, like account management is customer service for, for a different angle. Um, yeah, you have to just walk away sometimes not knowing that you didn't get the last word and being okay with that, which is like a very, not immature, but human thing to, to want to be like, Oh yeah, I got one in. But like, even with employees and stuff, if they've sent you, you know, something that you disagree with, you have to like, remember, yeah. This isn't my sister. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other thing you mentioned that stuck out to me that I think could be a good lesson here is the importance of standards. Yes. And, and that they taught you standards. Can you get into how they taught you standards? What standards look like in this organization? Um, yeah. So, I mean, even just in your communication, like, you know, not sending an email, I'll make it a, a really simple one. Like the, one of the most useful classes I took, they sent me to like a writing class and it was like your email subject line can do half of the work for you. And I think when it comes to selling a product or even for us who like, we were a little guy trying to sell a new product to some big guys and looking like you have your shit together is important. <laughs> and so having like a, uh, you know, a subject line that, that, tells you something about what's about to happen. Having an email that has all of the information in one place. That's like a standard of communication that was built into me at, at Ogilvy. It was like, don't, don't toss things over the fence and like wait for someone else to take care of it. Even within our own organization, like within, within KDT, it's between each other. It's like, don't, you could say like, Hey, how much was this order? so-and-so who is in charge of catering it's like you can look it up like you could move the for the conversation forward faster if you gave a more comprehensive piece of communication and so that's one standard um i think that also comes back to as the the owner of whoever you know the the company is mm -hmm. the organization is are you making that information so accessible are are you training people on how to find the information you don't need to know the answer but you need to know where to find it and are you empowering people to be able to do yeah like an example that comes to my mind like we just transitioned from uh using we went from just basically when it was just me just like lining uh-huh. up interviews, like I was, I would just do everything. And then I had somebody else who was involved. So we started putting things into like a CRM essentially, mm-hmm. which was called HelloCast, but that's no yeah. longer around. So we moved to Airtable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah, Airtable, heard of it, which, yeah. is, which is so awesome. Yeah. But you can literally like, you can use those, those, those tools like checklists. So if you need something, you know what, so for me, it's I'm producing episodes. So mm-hmm. every, every line, like every, um, I guess, row you would call it i i treat each column like a checklist as you go left to right yeah and everything that you need is embedded within that so yeah. like don't come to me if you need something if 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 it's not there then come to me because i missed something yeah you also you, you gotta you gotta build systems and you yeah. gotta train people on 
how to get that information. Yeah, and I think the the difference, big, huge difference between us and Ogilvy is Ogilvy's like a hundred, I don't know how old they are. How old are, um, I don't, don't know, almost a century, <laughs> I think, if not. I guess he was like in the 50s. So I feel like, anyway, they're old. A lot of systems established, even for any agency that I was at, a lot of systems. I guess at my later agencies, I got... Um, experience and what it looks like when you don't have systems in place, which is also important because it was like, how do you build a system from scratch? So I got to see what like an 80 year old system looked like. And then I got to build some of my own systems. And then now at KDT, like, yes, having to, we're constantly having to evolve our systems and the way that we communicate and the things that you can do easily on your own or need help or how can we make it more efficient? Like, yeah. So being it's, it's different. I mean, you can talk about like, how do you uphold standards in a well-established ad agency, but then it kind of all, you know, <laughs> becomes a different ball game when you are dealing with a startup food company. Yeah. I, I want to start talking about the restaurants. Soon. Yes. We're almost there. Yes. But, um, when you left or go, I don't know, still struggling with this word. Orgelvy. Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Why the, well, there's no R there. Ogilvy. Oh, I'm trying to think of a mnemonic device, but I can't. You were there for a few years. When you moved on, were you just climbing the ladder? Was it time for you to, was there more opportunity? Did you yeah. get a ceiling where you were? Yes. Uh, well, I'll be honest. I mean, because I think it's an interesting thing. There's a weird thing in advertising, and I think in a lot of industries, that they're not going to pay you until you leave. And it's just like, it still goes on and it's so crazy to me that you just won't proactively if they just proactively had given me a higher salary I would wouldn't have left I really yeah. liked it but I needed to make more money I was in New York and it's like crazy it's yeah um uh, yeah it's one of the things that I also learned there I was like I never want to forget what it felt like to have no money yeah um because it seems like everyone above me had forgotten <laughs> um but uh yeah, so I was just moving for for raises and different opportunities. I would say after Ogilvy, I left for a raise, one hundred percent, and then um, and then after that, it was I'm like trying to think. It was open opportunity. I wasn't necessarily looking. It was opportunities that came through um, that any obviously offered lessons, more money. Any points of evolution for you that you think served you later in life? Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely the later ones, like the Red Peak, which is actually where I met my husband. Um, uh, and the funny story is I tried not to hire him, but, <laughs> but I ended up really liking him. Um, that was important because that was definitely a newer agency. And that's where I got to kind of expand my wings and be more of like a creator of systems and, and a leader um, versus just, you know, executing, which is what I was craving the whole time. I kept being like, I want to make something (laughs) i I know i was like oh shit (laughs) look what i did um but that's where i kind of got my feet wet in that sense of like you know there wasn't an account management department and i i made one and um that was fun that was and that was important because you kind of realize like every you know you think oh why isn't this system better couldn't they just do this and then you you start kind of bumping against the things that you're like oh well this is why this is the way this is or dealing with different financial regulations or whatever it may be and just trying to put all the pieces together of all these systems i think the one of the things i i learned um and it wasn't because I came up against no very often, but like there was never like a can't do in advertising. It was just like, you figure out how to get stuff done. You figure out how to get to the right person that you need to help you get something done. And when it came to 
KDT, that was 100% necessary. Like my ability to, to kind of weave my way through the red tape of, of the, you know, municipal, whatever about permitting and, you know, all of the different departments. Um, I learned all of that in, in advertising, even if it wasn't internal in advertising, even with clients, it's like, okay, well maybe we present to this person, like, you know, we can get better buy-in or make sure that we have this person in the meeting and those kind of things. So, um, that kind of strategic work was, was done more later in my career. Tons of social and emotional intelligence. Yeah. That. Just not just on being and empathizing with the person who's going to be receiving the ad, the, the mm-hmm. message, but also in pitching and selling yep. and, and knowing the room and yep. getting backers, right? Like, and, yeah. and, and having that dance, I'm sure. But even to, to this day, I'm sure that's those skills are serving you, right? And yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, you, uh, what, what did you say? You mentioned that, um, I think it might've been at group five, maybe it was at red peak right. where you, you, you found yourself wanting to work with food. Was there, were you getting sick of the work? Was, was the, the work not really fulfilling to you? What yeah. was going on internally? I was just <laughs> sick of the subject content. I think, uh, I, I, I hate to say, I mean, I, I can get really passionate about pretty much anything I can like dive in. Like when I was working on Intel, I knew everything about chips. I don't remember anything anymore, but, um, and when I was working on like chase mortgage, like all of a sudden I learned about, you know, how mortgages worked. Um, really boring mundane stuff. I can really sink my, my teeth into, but I was like, am I going to be doing this my whole life? Am I going to have to like fake and I started to have, you get to a point in advertising where you stop executing and you need to start pitching and selling things in. And I started to feel in a lot of situations that I was pitching something I didn't believe in. Mm. And I'm not very good at that. The people who are good at advertising, you have to be good at that. Yeah. And, and it's not, and it's not a knock on them at all. It's like my, my husband does it. My sister does it like they all, and they're, they're great at it. And I just like, wasn't as good at it. And I felt like not motivated by it. Yeah. So I think this, yeah. the, the same goes with sales. Like you're yeah. selling a, an idea, a project, a, a thought you're, you're pitching your work to yeah. a client. Same goes with sales. I feel like I could be a great salesperson, but I'm only a great salesperson if I truly believe in right. what I'm selling. Right. Because then you're not selling, you're helping people. You're, right. You're, and there's not a lot value. of things out there that are truly good for you. <laughs> I, know. you know? I mean, it's one of the big reasons why I only try to partner with the tools and services my guests recommend because yeah. I can get excited about that yeah. versus some random company that reaches out to me and like, Hey, create these ads and sell right. my product. I'm like, does it work? Right. Like, am I exploiting my audience by right. doing this? Like, but by believing in something like when you read an ad, you're just like, it just flows because you yeah. believe in it and you, you're like, yeah. this is going to help people. You know, yeah. there's definitely a change there. Yeah, for sure. And that's, it's very lucky now to be able to, and it not even just the products that you're selling, but just like the policies and things that you're having to enforce. It's like, if you don't believe in it, like I don't, I'm not good at executing other people's policies that I don't like. Yeah. So I can see, I can see how that could start to bog you down yeah. uh, spiritually for sure. Yeah. So your, your strategy was, well, if I can't, you know, have control over the work I'm doing, at least I can maybe do work that's closer to my interest. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, well maybe if I have to be in advertising, (laughs) have to be, it sounds like so, Oh, you know, it was not, it was not terrible. It was great. It's a great industry. They, you know, there's a lot of, um, upward mobility and there is, um, it can be really fun. Um, I had so much fun. Um, but if I, yeah, have to, if I'm going to be in this kind of work my whole life, like I would love to work for, 
yogurt or you know or fresh direct like <laughs> i was saying like i i could talk for, to out for hours about fresh direct um something that i'm really passionate about because that's the that's kind of going to be my lifeboat like i i can't talk about people's products that I don't care about anymore. And so that's how I was like, I would go client side, which is what a lot of people in their mid thirties do in advertising. Um, cause it tends to be a better way of life, I guess. Um, but focus on like one product or company that I could believe in and, and do it that way. Got it. And I think this is an underlying lesson that's worth really emphasizing that if you're going to go do something, especially open a restaurant or whatever it is, like you will have an edge. You will have a competitive edge if whatever that thing is lights you up on the inside. You have to be able to show up to it every day. Yeah. And if if, if you don't have that inside of you, it's going to be much more difficult. Yeah. And, and I think you're living proof of that. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot and I've talked about it a lot recently because especially now that I have a, a team around me who can who takes a lot of the day-to-day stress off of me, which is a new thing. Like it's a, you know, not new in six years, obviously it's, it's a new thing in the past year or so. Um, but now I'm able to reflect on like, I've never, I've been like, you know, not happy about getting up at two in the morning or whatever. I've been, it's upsetting to get calls in the middle of the night, all these things, but I've never not wanted to go yeah. to work. I've never not, I'm so excited. I've never had a 3 PM like, Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> you know, I like, I'm jazzed about everything every day, even if it's like really annoying stuff. So let's, let's talk about the transition from when you go, okay, I'm done with the advertising. I've always wanted to fill mm-hmm. in the blank. What was the thing that was like, what was the, the narrative in internally? Well, a lot of it, this is where like, I guess my dad comes in because a lot of it was driven by literally like the fear of death. Um, and, um, that made me probably get a little bit more brave with what I was going to do because so in 2015, yeah. Um, my dad was like not in good condition and he had Lewy body dementia, which if anyone knows about it, like you don't, they diagnose it now more often, but they, with all the dementias, they don't really know what it is. They can't really tell you what's going to happen. They're just like, it's going to be terrible. Like enjoy, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. Um, so you basically relive a nightmare every day, especially for the person who's experiencing it. But, um, but so his life was almost ending and it was bad. And I felt like I was doing meaningless things with my life and, um, was also scared that like one day if I, had the same thing that my dad had, like, how would I feel about what I did with my life? So my internal dialogue was like, I, you know, I've always wanted to do this breakfast taco company. And I really had, you know, run what I thought were numbers, but you know, we're not really numbers, but like, you know, ran the business plan through and through. And and I was like, I think that could work. There were also some other things on the table, like, you know, um, like going back into advertising and, and working client side or something or writing children's books was one thing I had like a concept for that. But, um, I just felt like I was better equipped to do a breakfast taco company. So now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to kind of talk about how, where you started and how you did it. Cool. 
This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO exists because their experience over the years has revealed all the frustrations, bottlenecks, and pain points restaurant owners experience when managing their establishment. Beyond their understanding of all the ills that plague the restaurant industry, MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. MyRestaurantCFO CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be the guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. My Restaurant CFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Spending more on a CFO will actually improve your profitability and help you achieve a a better work-life balance. With my restaurant CFO, you'll be able to focus your time on positive customer experiences, always know how your money is working for you and where you can save, no learning curve, and no more late nights trying to make sense of your financial ecosystem. When you partner with my restaurant CFO, they'll provide accurate weekly and monthly reporting, trend analysis for easy forecasting, improved control over vendor costs, complete financial analysis, and recommendations sourced from over 30 years of operational experience and 10 years of consulting experience on how to save more money. If you're ready to start making the right decisions for the growth of your business, your call to action is to go to myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner of myrestaurantcfo.com, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. That's myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. We're back and I want to get into when you said, okay, tacos it is. This is my path. This is what I'm going to do. What did you start doing first? How did you make it happen? Where did you start? Um, and this goes back to like the thoroughness kind of thing. I formed an LLC first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why but, is that important for those who don't understand business entities? Because you can't do anything without it. You can, but not for very long, you know? And I felt like um, I needed, how did I know? I'm probably sure I got some advice probably from a friend or something. Um and my knowledge trying of, to think of, of LLCs, how I knew yeah. of why they're important is that they take the the liability off of you. So you yes. can it's, so, a, it's yeah. an entity of its own. So it, it it's like you are an entity. You like you know, Liz Yeah, Solomon's so basically if something if somebody like got sick from the food or if I like hit somebody with our car, God yeah. forbid, like then it's not like my assets under exactly. you know, under under threat. So I mean there's that yes, that's the reason for an LLC, but like why did I do that first? I you know, I just felt I think that I think I looked through like all the things I needed for a, a permit. And you needed like a sales tax authority. And I was kind of working backwards as like breadcrumbs. I was like, okay, well, I want a sales tax authority. And so then I, but I need an LLC for that. And then I need an EIN for that. And so yeah. I just started like, you know, it kind of led me to the New York State yeah. <laughs> Department of Corporations. I think a lot of business banking accounts want you to have a, uh, some business entity or yes. at least an EIN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to go to the state and say, I'm, I want to become something. Yeah. So you can get that EIN. And, and I didn't even get a business banking account until February of 20. 
16. Yeah. So a few months. I did a few months without it. I remember being so nervous. I don't know why I was so nervous going to get a business bank account. I think because it was like I was really putting stuff on the line. Like once I started like using a credit card, it was like, uh uh-oh. So what was the vision when you were just getting started? What was the Mm -hmm. vision? What What were you trying to achieve? I was trying to make breakfast tacos a thing in New York because it just seemed like there was no reason that there shouldn't be. They shouldn't have, they should work here. And if you do them the right way. So I was off to like, you know, try to solve the problem that, that many people before me had been trying to solve, but seemingly not, not as not successfully. Um, well, that whether it was successful or not, they had stopped, you know? So, um, try to solve the answer to why is there no Tex-Mex in, in New York and specifically why is there no, why are there no breakfast tacos? And what was your plan on, cause you weren't going to go and be a, a, you know, breakfast taco juggernaut from day yeah. one. You had to start someplace. Where oh, were- but I had juggernaut in my mind from day one. I've <laughs> always had juggernaut from day one. If I didn't have like juggernaut, I wouldn't, there's again, it's like if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Like I have to have, a goal was the path to getting to juggernaut clear in your head at this point or were you just clear ish? I would like to go back to 2016 Liz and see what exactly I thought. I did think I would be profitable in six months. <laughs> you did think that you would be? Yeah. I was like, if I'm not paying myself a regular salary in six months, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you paint the, the, the place of where you were? Did you have money put away from advertising? No, you, no, nothing. Okay. So, so I, I actually was on unemployment at that point okay. and they had, they sent me a letter this is important, I think, is you know, give everyone gives the government no love, and they pretty much probably don't deserve it most of the time. But there was a program um, that when I had signed up for unemployment, um, they sent me a letter that was like, "You've been identified as someone who is unlikely to go back into the workforce." <laughs> And work for someone else. And I was like, interesting. And there was a pro- it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how do you find that out? Um, and it was that was that was like November. Um, and so they're fast. I mean, this, you know, pre COVID. Um, and they said, if you want to take part in this program, it's called the self employment assistance program, SEEP. They need help with branding. But um, SEEP, then you don't have to continue looking for a job. Um, you can just basically take part in some business training programs and you need to submit certain things to like, it's in partnership with the SBA, I believe, or they made me get an SBA advisor. I don't remember how it worked, but um, basically you need to hit certain milestones of submitting like an actual business plan and doing certain things and taking like some, I had to take so courses. Yeah. They want to make sure you're not just, you know, mm-hmm. and they said you'll get full unemployment benefits for the per- for the duration of this time. And, um, uh, and, uh, we'll help and, you know, we'll help you build, build your business. That's and so I literally used unemployment funds to, to start. So for somebody who might be identifying with this, where mm-hmm. they may have came from a career where they have assets, degrees, knowledge, yeah. skill sets that could serve them, they might be eligible. Is this just through the state of New York? Um, the other states might have it, but yeah, it was, it was a state in, it was a New York state situation. Where, where would you go? Cause they approached you, but where would you go to find out if you were eligible for a program like this? If you needed a little bit of a runway, I would support? start with, with the SBA. Um, there are local SBA offices, um, that, um, would be able to direct you. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately, most kind of city government agencies, you have to really work the system to get the answer that you're looking for. But I would I would contact, you know, unemployment divisions and things like that and see if they have any assistance programs. They don't want you to stay unemployed. Yeah, They want you to go 
do something. Um, and there's usually a lot of options for that. And especially now, I think after COVID, um, they probably have a lot more programs and even grants that you could get. So you started <laughs> this project in like 2015, right? Is when mm-hmm. you were like, okay, I'm going to start yeah, making like moves. Like the end, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, through end of 15 into 16, um, you get your, your LLC, you join this program where you're getting cash flow now. Mm-hmm. When, what was the first thing you sold? Like what, like take us to that point of like when you were in business. Um, the first thing I sold was tacos. Yeah. But like, <laughs> like when was that? Like that was in June. June. So, and you want me to take you through like the whole, the process to get there? Yeah, so yeah. What did, what did you need to accomplish to get to that? So I point? needed to get my food protection certification. So I got that in January and that's like very easy to, to get online. Um, they'll give anyone a, a weapon. No, it's, it's like a, you know, you don't have to work in a kitchen. You just have to take these online courses. But I very quickly realized that I took these online courses and, and got, you know, 98, which I'm still sour about when they won't even tell me what, what, what question I missed. But, um, for some reason, it'd be useful to know what you don't know. I know it's crazy. Right. <laughs> I was like, and that was me kind of along every, at every point of the process. I'm like, why are you guys doing this this way? Um, so I, I got my food protection and then I realized I needed to work in a kitchen. I tried to get jobs in a kitchen. Um, uh, and no one would hire me. So then I took an unpaid internship, um, with, a group that I had like been introduced to serendipitously and I reached out and was like, I'll do anything. And they, um, made me like an intern at one of their, their pop-ups. It was the owners of the meat hook. Um, and they had like a pop-up in inside of a beer hall and I worked there and got some experience in like how to actually just like talk the talk, um, (laughs) and, and walk a little bit of the walk. Uh, and then I was recipe testing and in April I, had landed in a shared kitchen. I like, you know, rented it out for a day to do actual, like to scale the recipes. Um, I still had no freaking clue what I was doing. Well, like we cooked potatoes three different ways and like landed on what we were going to do. It's really funny. The things we thought like, we could have done. We were like sauteing potatoes in a pan at one point, but <laughs> <doesn't> um, <laughs> it's, well, not Hard for scale. scale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great for your home. Yeah. I learned the difference between home cooking and uh, commercial cooking. Exactly. Um, so, uh, and then that was April. And then I, I think I, I was still working at El Meat Hook in May. And I think like mid May, I was like, okay, I got to go. Cause basically I was getting married. Um, June 6th, my husband had proposed to me like, two weeks after I made the leap from advertising, he was like, Bad timing, he, sweetie. <laughs> no, he, no, he, he did it on purpose oh, after really? that. Cause he was like, this is, he was, he was going to do it anyway, but he was like, now I want to really like show how committed I am and like that I'll support so you in whatever yeah. you, you want to do. Um, so he proposed in November and we were getting, getting married in June. So I took off a few weeks to get married June 5th. Wait, say so yeah. June 6, 5. And, uh, then came right back to to New York and started cooking. And I had those, I had like two trial runs um, in June. We gave for free, one at Ogilvy and then one at my husband's agency. Um, definitely learned a lot on those trial runs and I got feedback, like, you know, asked for like comment cards and things like that. Um, people probably were too nice. Um, and then sold an order of tacos to, um, uh, an agency at the end of June also. That's smart. So you, you, you're working with the network you have, mm-hmm. right? What made you think, what was your thought process behind this? How do you get started to, to get, I just knew there? it was a sitting duck. Like 
not that the people I knew were sitting ducks, but just like the opportunity for a better breakfast for client meetings and for, for ad agencies that had a large budget for those kind of things, but not so large that you can spend $20 a head, you know, but it was like, you want something cool. You want something more health conscious, but you need it to kind of impress clients. Like it was obvious that advertising could use <laughs> breakfast tacos. Yeah. Plus you're leveraging, it's almost like an unfair advantage that you had because you're leveraging re- pre-existing relationships. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally. Sure. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Use those. I mean, business at the end of the day is all about relationships. Yeah. You need relationships to do anything. Leverage the relationships you have instead yeah. of going out there and trying to create relationships from scratch. And that's right? another reason I couldn't have done this as early as I had had the ideas because so much of it was built on my 10 years of networking in, in New York Yeah, and the people that I knew. I mean, so much of our story is like really is serendipitous or like, you know, lucky encounters, but based on relationships that I had, whether it's like literally like one of the key points in our story comes from, or like an inflection point or, you know, basically, you know, how we ended up getting our first piece of press was because someone posted something and the person who posted it was the best friend of a girl that I met at the gym. And, you know, it's like all these kind of weird well, little things. I mean, obviously, like you get to think uh, it doesn't hurt that you have a network in advertising and promotion yep. and branding, you know? Like, yeah, no, definitely doesn't hurt. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that is definitely, a, but again, like that's your unfair advantage. Like mm-hmm. lean into it. Don't be so proud that you can't leverage those relationships. Yeah, totally. Use what you have in your favor. Yeah. Um, and they about- still come to play. Like I still like, I'm getting messages from people I worked with at Ogilvy that like we're catering now for their, you know, have huge catering accounts, at their businesses. Yeah. So what, was that the strategy from day one? Or like, I'm going to start with catering. And yes. that's why is that the way to go? Cause I had no way? money. <laughs> but, but what's, what's good about like, regardless of whether or not you have the money or like, what's mm-hmm. why, why is that the option for somebody with no money? It's controllable. Um, yeah. because you don't have to like have a huge amount of investment to execute. Like you can, um, we were able to rent out a kitchen. We were able to, to kind of like pop up and, pop down if you, uh, if you will. Um, so it was a good way to say that I'm only going to basically expend, make it have expenses when I have an order. So as long as I could make sure that I was at least breaking even, then I didn't need any capital. Exactly. Do I, do I recommend that all the time? Maybe as a way when to test that, a con- What do you mean? Not having capital. Got it. <laughs> um, you can do it. It's just not, obviously you need you, you need to figure it out at some point. If you point. don't have it, you don't have it. You, you don't have it, you don't have it, somewhere. and it's doable without it. So the thing I'm picking up is the overhead much lower. Yes. Um, you're not going out and getting a bunch of, of inventory that's sitting on shelves. Right. If, you don't, if you're not liquid, right. you can go, hey, oh, oh we, we're going to feed exactly 150 people. Mm-hmm. I'll buy exactly a, a, this a, amount. Exactly. Yeah. So you're not wasting any, were you getting paid in advance? Yes. Cause so for you, catering you'd get, yeah, you'd get paid before you drop off the tacos. Exactly. So it's, it's a really great way to get started Yes, uh, with low liability. Plus you don't have to drum up that business after you have gotten started. You, you know, you, you can keep that appendage once you right. get the brick and mortar. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, catering is, it was, is, and was, was and is a huge part of our of our business and it and it still is such like a I mean catering is a great business it's just it if 
yeah, it can be an entire business. It, that just wasn't the vision that we had. That wasn't the way that I was going to become a juggernaut, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So did you know, did you have the busy, the business savviness at this point to recognize the significance, the power of doing one thing really well? Yes, because we only had two tacos and one salsa and everyone hated me for it. Not hated. They kept wanting me to do more things. And I was like, no, 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 why, no. Why <laughs> no? Why no? Because I couldn't control my inventory. Mm-hmm. I had, I already like, you know, was like, you know, I would, to some extent I was trying to control waste, but I couldn't just make only what I needed for an order. Like I would make a little bit extra and I would hope and pray that I got an order in and I would get to use all that salsa. Um, or that the bacon wouldn't, you know, go bad before, before we got our next order. So like the more you, more things you make, the more risk you're exposing yourself to. So we, so I knew very early, it was in our very, very first pitch deck that like we were minimal minimum viable product and it we weren't getting into lunch we weren't getting into dinner we weren't doing anything else we were just doing the tacos what is a minimal viable product minimum viable product is like the minimum the the the, i mean the smallest amount of something or the smallest number of skews or the, the the most stripped back version of a product that you can do and still be successful did you read eric reese's book no the, the MVP, the minimal viable. No, so but was, I probably like you know probably Google book it. dedicated okay. to that concept. I was wondering. That's <laughs> I probably got it from Nate. Honestly, my husband. I'm, I'm. I feel like he introduced me to that term. But it's super powerful. You yeah. Know? And and I think the other part of this too is it's true to what you were trying to do. You go to Texas. You go to Austin. You get breakfast tacos. There's not a lot of options. Yeah. You got usually like three or four options. So some. I feel like. Taco Deli, I was just there. They've got a lot of options. But even they just, they strip back their menu and same with Torchies. Like, I don't know if that's more of a COVID thing and even Chewy's. Breakfast tacos. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking when you're going out for breakfast tacos, if you're yeah. in line at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., like they usually have like three or four options. Oh yeah. If you're doing grab and go, it's very, yeah. it's, you got to keep it, keep it minimal because you don't, you're not trying to cater to everyone's needs and you need to sell everything that you have there. So you're not, you're not like just making to order and can make a million different versions. Yeah. What's your favorite breakfast taco joint in Austin, Texas? It's a trick question, but I will go hard and just say taco shack. Taco shack is my desert Island, uh, breakfast taco. Is, is it the like most fantastic, like extreme flavors? Like, no, it's not, but it is the most solid. It is just like solid, delicious, so good. I just What's had that, it. that taco place with the brisket that's South Austin. Valentino's. Valentino's. Yeah. Oh my, oh my God. Those I haven't are amazing. been and I, and I, it's just going to be so far away. Every time I go home, I, you know, trying to deal with family stuff. Make and time it's, for it. <laughs> so it's, I, and I need to, and my, I think that's the one that my siblings and I send around to each other the most. We're like, we got to get this. And oh then we get gosh. home and it's like madhouse. Like mom, thinks you here. This is happening, you know, <laughs> and somehow we don't make it. So, but yeah, Valentina is great, but like, I don't think you can eat that every day. No, not for sure. But yeah. if, if you're, tr- if you're looking to treat yourself, that's amazing. Austin, Veracruz is awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I want to get them on the show. I think it would, yeah. I'm, I'm okay. We're getting they were, they're, they're, it's <laughs> awesome. But like, I'll go hard for taco shack because they've, the first of all, I think they're original Austin. I mean, they opened maybe in the nine early nineties. So not like, you know, super, super old, but like it's a local company and they are consistent and they are nice and their ta- their eggs are amazing. And it's just good, simple food. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so so back to your storyline, and you you're like, no, I'm dead set on a minimal viable product. We're gonna do a few things really well. We're gonna mm-hmm. start with catering because it's more controllable. Uh, we don't need the we don't need to have that bunch of cash mm-hmm. sitting on shelves. We yeah. don't need to be you know well financed to do that. Um, what was your strategy beyond getting like when like how did you build it from what you described up to this point to where it is today? We also have to talk about branding. Did you have yeah. the brand at this point? I did. I had the name, and I had we had done. I had briefed. I had gone through a couple of design briefings, and I had an original logo that was given. Um, and I made the classic mistake of not just googling it before I was like, I think I posted our first Instagram, like our Instagram account. I like posted with this logo. And then I was like, maybe I should Google this. And it turns out the designer had like really just ripped something off from um, like an icon shop or it was like really way too close. It, it was not good, but they had come up with the concept of the taco Dillo. Okay. Um, so that I felt like was like, okay, that was a good step. The logo is wrong. I wasn't getting what I needed. I like, you know, I w- did know how to brief, but I think I was make. there's a, this is where like not having money can also work against you. Like you're, you know, you do have to pay for really good design. Yeah. Um, so, but so I had the concept and basically then had to, um, I found someone on Upwork who's awesome, who worked with us for many, many years. And she was a food, um, illustrator. And, uh, she did our logo. So I did all of that. Those are all like the checkbox thoroughness. Like <laughs> I was checking all the boxes. Like they were all, all of that was done. The brand so was So what done. were those checks on the brand? If going through your mind, like what are the things that you went through as somebody with a background in advertising and branding? What was that checklist for you? Um, is it memorable? The name is it, does it, um, how does it abbreviate? Um, if it, if it should be or could be abbreviated, um, is it, uh, I don't know for, for me, it was like, is it lovable? Um, is it something you want to see on food? Um, and yeah, I mean, and then what's, what's the story and how do you come up with the name? And I think, you know, King David tacos was, I felt like the story was solid. So what is that story? Cause I know there is a story behind it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, my dad's name was David and his, he was a big guy whose friends called him King David. And my whole life is just, I remember like he was a, he had a orthopedic and shoe store supply. He was also a small business owner. And I would like go with him on sales calls and he would walk into stores and you know, people like, Hey, King David, Hey, (sighs) King David. And his one of his best friends, like always greeted him as King David. So I didn't call him King David, but, but like it was King David was kind of his persona. Um, and, uh, so when I was daydreaming about doing this in advertising, I always was like, I'd call it King David. I, I messed around with like, you know, different versions of that, but I feel like King David tacos was, uh, the right syntax, the right kind of vibe and, um, was in his honor. Cause I guess the part I failed to mention was when I was working at Ogilvy and he came to visit, he, he said, you should open a breakfast taco stand in Times Square. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a location in Times Square yet? I did. We did. Uh, we're in Bryant Park at Whole Foods Bryant Park. Here's looking at Close-ish, you, Dad. Close-ish, yeah. I love it. So um, I wish, the, the, that's great advice on the branding, though. I'm, I couldn't help but thinking of Restaurant Unstoppable as you're going. I do like the brand, but man, uh, it abbreviates to RU, which yeah. could be political. 
Oh, uh, interesting. <laughs> Russia's abbreviation is Armenia. Yeah, but sometimes but, there are things that totally like fly in the face of that, and it doesn't. And it doesn't matter. Like if you think about, like, can you believe there's a shoe brand called UGG? Right, but also it's two long words: restaurant and unstoppable, which is hard to work with. Restaurant. I don't so, know. Like, I liked it. I do kind. Of, I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm being all, all, yeah. ultra critical on myself. Yeah. Right now, but I think there. It's. I could play with the are you feeling unstoppable yeah. or are you. Um, you know, yeah. Just I think there's. A I didn't think Russia at all. I thought like, are well, you? Somebody said that to me once, and ever since I was like, I could just. Hey, you know, like, people sometimes some people see Russia? King Druid. We are gonna have to see. Uh, <laughs> we are gonna have to like do like a slight tweak to our logo at some point when we become when we go national because I feel like that's gonna bother me forever because so, so, like you know three people have said it to me and now I'm like oh my god do I see King Druid only King Druid like it's <laughs> obviously King David who the hell is King Druid but like you know but these are important things to keep in yeah. mind too and especially the abbreviation later on in branding if you're trying to do swag or mm-hmm. logo and like yeah. abbreviations are just they just work nice yeah you know? for sure uh, so great tips there so okay so we, we are at the point in your journey where you know you're gonna do just a few things really well the power in doing that um any other additional thoughts around that before moving on that are worth dropping on us and the the significance of how narrowing your focus early on has helped you and and empowered you to to get to where you are today? I think it just, I mean, it, I was, it was critical. Like we, we did end up off it. We have nine tacos now, but even then, like, you know, that was, that was a long and hard fought battle to get, to get there. Um, you don't, I mean, you can have that be a part of your vision, but it, you, right. you can scale into that. Yeah, you need it, restraint is very important. Mm-hmm. Restraint is very important. You can get distracted by a lot of shiny things, and you there's always something to be excited about. Like that's that's what's great about not doing it all at once is that there's something to like look at and be like, I'm gonna get there. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna add that chorizo taco, and one then I'm gonna add migas, and then I'm gonna be serving queso, and <laughs> you know, and one day I'm gonna have you know all these things. You gotta have something to work towards. But like if you just don't have the means for it, then it it could be, I, I really felt like it would be our downfall. I mean, it was every time we added another taco, it was kind of like, are we sure we're ready for this? Well, how did you know you were ready? The volume. If we had enough volume, like literally like, you know, making tacos, like assembling them. It's like, if we could do an entire round of one kind of taco, then it was like, if we weren't splitting one so of the things of work, that they want to say it like units of work. So what do, you, yeah. what do you mean by an entire round? Like one effort assembly of, assembly. Like if so you were the like prep a, the prep. That. Yeah. And, and it always, you had to have like cross utilization. So I mean the Teresa was just cooking Teresa. We already had the bacon, pota- the, sorry, the potato, egg and cheese. Um, Migas was a new thing, but one thing, you know, thinking about like three ingredients versus four and like learning how, yeah, how efficient we could be in production. I think it really came down to what our, um, I'm thinking about it. Like, you know, how many staff did we have? Were we utilizing the staff to the fullest capacity? And it's like, I mean, did you have the orders and was there the need Were customers requesting it? So when you're saying orders, Mm Mm-hmm. Are you talking the volume? Well, I guess we, okay, yeah, it was volume for catering, but then when the carts opened, that's when we were able to really kind of expand our menu because we had every day going out there, we were needing to respond to demand. And if we only had two tacos on the menu, like probably wouldn't be as, as easy of a sell. So you needed to give a little bit more variety, but not so much. And then we were doing enough volume that it made sense to one of the lessons that when I was at El Meat Hook, um, this guy Dom taught me and it's, I don't think it's like, you know, super, uh, 
I'm, sh- I'm I always am conscious of like people are like I always say that too but whatever Dom always in my mind's eye telling me do as much of one thing at a time as possible so like when it comes to making tacos it was the same thing I don't want to be like all right make like 10 BPEC and then like make like 20 orizo and then five of these it's like that's really inefficient so yeah. um, it was just kind of knowing when we got to those levels that we would be able to to make enough of each that it our time was utilized properly. So the the thing that I like to echo here on the show is what determines growth. I always say cash flow mm-hmm. and people. And I think yeah. that you're saying the same thing using different words. Yes. By volume, indirectly you're talking about cash flow. Yes, yeah, right? exactly. Uh and also like units of work too, but that again goes to cash flow because you're lowering your cost of goods sold. Your your labor expenses are yep. gonna be down and you don't need to do as much work because you're just kind of like it's like one fell swoop. Right. And you're got everything. But now you only that's the difference between one fell swoop and two fell swoops, you know, is yeah. double. So you're well, keeping your expenses down. Right. And so it's like even now, sometimes we're like, you know, why would, if we only need four trays of Rajas, like why would you only make four trays? Like it makes, takes the same amount of time to make four as it does 10. So like, you know, just being efficient with, with your production, I think was, was a big part of it. Got it. So June of 2016, you're catering for the first time. Like that's, this is the first event of selling tacos and by 2017 what month in 2017 september is when we launched so, our prospect park cart a little over a year a year and two months basically mm-hmm. is, yeah mm-hmm. is what, what it took you to go from yes. catering to actually having your cart yes what was that leap like and what what had evolved like what Scary had changed as hell <laughs> like where, where were you just before doing that and what like how did the, the catering evolve up to this point? So the catering, we got a really nice article written about us in New York Mag that basically made take, catering take off. So I kept going with that. It like wasn't every day, but it, we were you know booked a few times a week to to deliver catering orders of various sizes. Um, we were making people order like a hundred at a time. Were so you that, leveraging your network at this point? Yes, okay. for sure. And okay. I was you know emailing friends like you know here's your catering menu. Uh, made a lot of mistakes in this phase of our of our journey. Yeah, I think we need to go deeper here just because it's you did so well at getting the word out. At, yeah, at, with no experience in the restaurant industry to, to, to speak of. I think that's worth mentioning because in the past you would tie your name to another successful brand that's yeah. doing food. Like I went to go work for Thomas Keller for two years. Yeah. You go back home. This person worked for Thomas Keller. Like right. you can use that to like promote yeah. yourself, but you did it with that. no, yeah, nothing. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I feel like I've been trying to reconcile this recently. I, I think we were just doing something that no one else was doing. So selling proposition. It was, yeah, it was, there was, our product was scarce and we really, really were filling a market need. It was like we, people really needed individually wrapped breakfast and nobody was doing it. Lots of acronyms today. We have MVPs, we have USPs, you know, selling propositions. So you you were doing one thing that nobody else was doing and you were putting all of your energy into it. Yep. I've heard somebody say, I can't remember where this was, but if you can't be the best at something, then don't bother doing it. Yeah. And in a market like New York city to find a void in food, but everyone was staring at it. Everyone was always, oh, there's no Tex-Mex, oh, there's no breakfast tacos, but like no one was doing anything about it. So I was, I guess that's very typical of me. I was like, well, I'll do the thing that everyone thinks is too hard. <laughs> but I think too, like you, you took something that was a niche and you niched it down even further. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. I mean, because I do my limitations too. I didn't, I don't have uh, ex, uh, experience in the food industry. So if I was going to learn how to cook, like I needed to learn how to do one thing. Yeah. Like I, I struggled and different people who've worked for me have come from different backgrounds. And, you know, I, I, I don't ever call myself a chef, even though the recipes are mostly mine. Like there's 100% been input along the way from different people um, of new things that we've introduced. But I respect my, that you don't do that. It's what? <laughs> I, that, that you don't call yourself chef. I think that title gets thrown around way too much. Yeah. Recently. And it's also like, I'm like, on one hand, I don't want to disrespect people who actually did go exactly. to school. I also don't want to disrespect myself and what I've pulled off. Yeah. But basically, I'm a breakfast taco chef. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's that's if we need to put a title on it, I'll do that. So, so what tips do you have for people listening who are trying to get their name out? I mean, you had the network, but how were you packaging yourself? How were you? Were you just cold emailing people? Being like, I was hey. cold emailing, but I mean, it looked it was tight. Like it was. Uh, I mean, and I would say even uh, looking back at there are things I wish we'd done even tighter. But like we had a nice the presentation of the taco. This is the other thing us versus Austin. People oft, often compare us to be like, if they were in Austin X, Y, Z. And it's like, listen, we're not in Austin. We're in a different market. Our like breakfast tacos are wrapped so much better than anyone in Austin because New Yorkers expect a, like a beautiful package of food to be delivered to them. Their to go um, expectations are very high on point. New York uh, has the probably the most tight, delivery yeah like you're doing something go doesn't matter it needs to be like professional so you know making sure that that you know when you are cold calling or like i cold called one of our main retail partners and that's how we got it it's like i don't know i had my act together had my brand together had my pitch i was just seemed trustworthy back to trust do you remember like what those email like the format of the email what was included in the email like what is tight paint the picture of tight hmm I mean, it's, it's to the point with, also, I would say this, like you, you got to have a little bit of personality and this is what I also felt like I didn't get to do as often in, in advertising. I think sometimes it was welcomed, but many times it wasn't to be yourself. Um, and I think that, or cause you had to like be a certain person for a certain client. What you're describing right now is why I love the restaurant yeah. industry is because the freaks get celebrated. Yeah. You know, you can be whoever you want to be. If you yeah. don't like me, if you don't like my sense of humor, if you yeah. don't like how, like there's always a place for those people in the restaurant industry. And I find that if those people, those people tend to flourish in the yeah. restaurant industry. I think it was like, I'm sure I was myself. I, but I was like, you know, I have a, a great product that would solve this problem for you. And, um, I'd love to bring you samples and talk to you about it more. And, um, so samples is a big part of you offering sample, something free. Yeah. Offering like, oh, free meal. Like, let's- yeah. I mean, and it's, you got a sample. I mean, they got to make sure it's legit. I've also had people buy our product who haven't had it just based, you know, now that we've gotten so far, but, um, yeah, having so, it together, I think, you know, just, you don't want to say like, Hey, can we have a meeting? I've got breakfast tacos. You know, you have yeah. to get, you have to kind of do a little bit of the thinking for them. Mm-hmm. Like I see that you have this problem and here's what my product does for you. And I get emails all the time from, you know, people trying to sell me like fake eggs and stuff. And it's, uh, there's such, there's such a, there's a tone that's not great that it makes you like not trust them. But then some people have the right tone and they get me. So let your, you know, your true self shine through, let mm-hmm. your weird shine through. Be so beyond brand. Yep. Uh, 
be very intentional with what you're looking yep. for in the. Yeah, that's the worst, and I hate it. I hate doing it to people, and I hate when people do it to me. They're like, can I have a little bit of your time? I'm like, for what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm. Ha- I love talking to people, and I love helping people because so many people helped me. But like, you got to be intentional with what you're trying, what you're gonna do, what's the objective of yeah. the meeting, um, and yeah, and what does what just, problem does your product specifically solve for them? And what's the worst thing that can happen by not like they they say no? Yeah, you exactly. Know, so just try. Like put it as yeah. as many people as possible. Thank you for getting into that. So we are in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's June of sorry, September 2016. You've been catering, you're having success with catering, you have your your advertising clients and mm-hmm. the word is getting out there, articles are being written. You say time to go to two carts. What do you mean by two carts? What it what paint the picture of what that cart I wasn't was sure if it was gonna be two or one or three or five. I you know, I just like knew that we needed to do some kind of customer facing experience and I knew that brick and mortar wasn't gonna work out again back to like it was kind of out of necessity because I didn't have the capital but also because I was like I don't want to do anything beyond breakfast and I don't think we have a unique selling or we have a unique selling proposition I don't think we have one that's going to resonate for for lunch and dinner as much as it does for breakfast so to take a lease out and only sell until noon sounds crazy um so do you only sell till noon to this day no we sell till uh so yeah i like shoot myself in the foot because now we sell breakfast tacos all day and they do sell all that's good news for me because i'm getting a breakfast yeah y'all get breakfast tacos before you leave don't worry but like we do sell breakfast tacos all day um and but back then but but the majority of it is before noon and um and it makes sense here at our brick and mortar because we're already here. <laughs> well, so I think it works in New York because it's literally the city that never sleeps. You have yeah. people that are on But crazy let me stuff. see this. People think that. And then I've tried late night events. We don't we don't do we do like if it's, if it's for a wedding or like a specific event that like breakfast tacos are desired by the people there or they have a special meaning <clears throat> it works but like as a late night food people go for pizza mm. it's it i mean I, I don't even think in austin people eat, maybe at taco cabana they'll they'll do breakfast tacos but the reality is <clears throat> i think it sounds better than it than it turns out to be but so we we focus on the morning and that was the thing how can i take out a lease with if i'm just going to be focused in the morning i need to i would need to make the most of lunch and dinner which would mean i would need to bring on alcohol and all this stuff and that just wasn't what i was prepared to do because mm-hmm. of minimum viable product yeah so these two carts like um, paint the picture of what one cart was was it like- it was like a little it's like 72 inches long and 72 inches high well like an l like a l on its back yeah um and um they basically the the reason for the carts was to give ourselves a little storefront small footprint retail as we called it um that would be able to shoot in to a location and get out um so i didn't have to deal with all the overhead of of a of a brick and mortar space um and we could get into the exact spots that i wanted cuz i wanted to like kind of slide into these little like i knew people were walking past this park at in in on wall street all the time i knew you know prospect park had a huge amount of traffic so um, I wanted to get access to those those plots of land and, and having a mobile cart on um, restricted park land was the way to do that. So what what's the, as far as you had a lot of intentionality about where you wanted to be, what was driving where you wanted to be? What advice do you have for people who are trying to take this approach of small scale carts, all the, the benefits you just listed out? Yeah. Like how do we get strategic about location? With that Depends on what you're trying to do. Like, I mean, 
if you're trying to do dinner, it's going to be different than, than doing, I mean, you can see it in like, you know, where you see sweet greens. It's like where people are working. Right. Um, go to where people are. Where yeah. People are, you'll, there'll be hungry people. Right. Yeah. So, um, I, th- I would say like, you know, that's going to be the most important thing. I think like, you know, Ben and Jerry's when they opened up their first location, they just like sat on a corner with a person counter, you know, and just made sure that enough people were walking by. You want it to be easily accessible, but that kind of depends on what you're doing. If you're making a delivery business, it doesn't matter if it's easily accessible. It just matters that you can can get get places fast. So, um, so yeah, it just depends on what you're doing for us. Morning was most important. So I was like, you know, prospect park has like more so now than it even did then, but like what dog walkers, people exercising in the morning, people crossing, people leaving their houses to go to the subway. Like that was kind of the flip side of the commute. And then like wall street the wall street location was the other side of that was the, like where the commute puts you out. Like, so where you're going to work. Got it. Were you behind the cart or were you hiring at this point? I was behind the cart. I was hiring and behind the cart. <laughs> so they had two carts. Who was on yes. behind the second cart? They were not open at the, the first one opened in September and, um, then by the second I did hire did they work at that cart? Um, just cart attendants that I hired, um, through Craigslist. Got it. Who was my very first cart attendant? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know who's in like the cohort, but I'm like, who was the first hire? Um, but yeah, it was people, a lot going on yeah, it was people that I hired. My sister worked the cart a lot. Nate worked the cart a lot. I snagged as many people as I could. The problem was that you had to have a specific license and the city still makes it very hard to work so at carts. What did you, what advice do you have about getting that license? I know it's unique to the city, but any advice on that? <sighs> that one will get me angry. That, that <laughs> good. Let's get some emotion. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> The mobile vending industry in New York is... Is it too niche to New York to get into, do you think? <sighs> Maybe. Yeah. I know it's, New York is a, it's a, it's it's an unique. ecosystem of its own. It's an ecosystem of its own. I'll just say this. I mean, persistence is important. Anything in business is, is persistence is important. Got and it. so that's important for this because I literally was like crying in the Department of Consumer Affairs. Like they... Just give her a her license. So we they wouldn't. They here. wouldn't. And they <laughs> love not giving you things. They love not giving you things. Now after COVID, that's changed. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, yeah, I, I used to like, as an example, like I got through, I lost my social security card when I was like in high school and I like went to college, got married, moved to New York, got a job, did all these things without my social security card, but you cannot sell a hot dog <laughs> without a social security card. The real one can't have a copy, cannot be laminated. Yeah. I mean, it says don't laminate on the social security card, but, but see like how that could be an issue in a city like New York where there's just such a, a influx of people from but, all over. But why not have a passport? Yeah. Why not? Just because they just made that rule and it just is like crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) And then yeah, that's, it's quite niche, but they made that very difficult, but we did it. And I used to have to like shepherd people through that process. But again, the power of doing one thing really well gave you the ability to fit your entire operation into a cart. Yes. Which gives you that flexibility. Yeah. And it was like, they, they kept wanting me the, actually the department of health, health wanted me to make my carts more complicated because it would fit better into what they thought a mobile cart should be. They thought it should also serve coffee. And if I, if I was serving, there was a categorization for what I was doing. It was for prepackaged sandwiches, which is the taco, but they were like, well, why not just do coffee? Because then you just can add a wastewater tank and it's a lot easier. And I was like, how is, how, in whose world is that easier? It's easier for you guys. Cause you don't have to like think <laughs> about like something soon, something 
doing something different. But if I had done that, I wouldn't have fit two carts in a van. That mm-hmm. was a requirement for me. I had to, I only had one van. Buying that van was scary enough. I was not buying another. How um, much did these carts cost? What was your investment? Seven you, uh, you K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Master Chef Mobile Kitchens. Sharon <laughs> Klinger. He he was great. I actually, that was also serendipitous. I like walked down the street. Where, from, did he help you out? Um, help, he helped me in building the cards. I mean, let's give him another shout out because this is, this is a part of what I'm trying to do. I want to help people connect with good people. Well, he moved out to long Island, unfortunately, but he'll still work with you. His name, it's master chef mobile kitchens, master chef mobile kitchens. Yeah. Very Israeli combination. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, these words sound good. Sorry, Sharon, but, uh, yeah, no, he's great. And he was instrumental in our cart success. He used to be down the street actually. Um, but he moved out, but I, um, lived, I, when I was living in Prospect Heights, I remember just seeing a lot of food trucks in front of this place. So I went in one day and I was like, Hey, do you do like carts? And he was like, I build carts. And, um, I told him what I was trying to do and he had just been to Texas. And actually that's kind of a theme. Uh, anyone I was, I, who I kind of ran into and like had a really good start with, they had just been to Austin. They, they'd seen the business model in action and they were like, ah, oh, okay, I get, I get it. Yeah. Um, so Austin did a lot of legwork for me um, and becoming thank cool. You, yeah. Thank you. Austin, Austin, wasn't Austin fired Texas. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they're not a fan of it. Cause they're like, well, who are all these people showing up? Come on. <laughs> they it's just get over it guys. What did you think you were doing? Like, what did you think you were doing? <laughs> now just make your highway system and public transportation yeah. system match everything else. Yeah. Yeah, everyone like shoots down all the public transportation bills <laughs> all the time, and they're like, the traffic's bad. I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know. So we're getting some great tips here. Um, so thank you for that reference. If you're in New York and the, the East Coast, and you're looking for a cart, you know, yeah, he's in. great. Um, um, but yeah, so the carts were like the build. The basic build is like seven thousand seventy five hundred. And did then you need you, a loan, or did you have the cash put aside? So the I did put. So then I had, I started a friends and family round, and we raised um, about thirty k. Um, and so um, two carts in a van. Two carts in a van. <laughs> yep, basically. Yeah, I'm like that. Yeah, that adds up. Um, I'm like where else? Uh, oh, and my, um, my dad had passed away at this point. Mm. So I did, I was fortunate enough to, I mean, you know, from a life insurance policy, um, get some funding. And so I used that. What did I use that? I'm like, when did all of this happen? Um, I used that and then I, um, definitely the, the friends and family round basically purchased the carts in the van. Um, and, um, what happened then? Yeah. But then like the umbrella and like the wrapping of the cart and stuff, I would say like 10 K all Branded, in. Branded, I'm sure. Yeah. Somebody with yep. a background in advertisement, I'm sure everything was on point. Yeah. People didn't see me coming. They would be like, here's your, you know, wrap. And I'd be like, yeah, like <laughs> I gotta talk move to the you. logo a little uh, to the left and move it up here. And then can you actually reverse out? You're using the wrong version of the logo. Here's this AI file. They're probably can we get some photos of the early days. That'd be super. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. For I'd sure. See that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the B roll. So, uh, so okay, we we're the year now is two thousand sixteen, September two thousand sixteen. You've you've scaled the two carts, a van, and this is only four, you know, six years ago at this point. Yep. What was the next evolution for you? So then after the carts, um, it was starting the retail partner program. So the whole point of the carts was to become like a brand vehicle. A retail partner program. What is yep. that? So that's the whole or AKA wholesale. Um, but it's it's doing our grab and go breakfast tacos inside of other people's um coffee shops and cafes. So how long did it take you from going to two uh carts to being in someone else's store? Um 
That was 2017, a year. A year. Were there, what were the challenges of just being a car mobile, like a mobile car operation that people should know about? Or for you, what were the what, weather? What, <laughs> right? Especially in the York. weather, the people, having your store on wheels. What are the um, things you did not take into account that afterwards you're like, oh, I did not think about that? Well, things I underestimated were the weather, yeah. were the cold. I mean, we, our carts were built that you stood outside of them, which made them able to fit inside of a van, which fit my vision, but like made it very hard to retain staff in the winter. Mm. Um, I do it. There were just dressing really warm. Like, dressing warm. We gave wool socks when you started. We had like Arctic car hearts with our logo on them. And I do, I should give a shout out to like the, there were a, nice size group of cart attendants who worked for many years throughout the winter and they were hardcore, like totally hardcore, but they would sell a lot of tacos and make good money. So they would do it. So um, what was that process? Cause you, everything was like made at the stand. Like the, every- no, no, no. We made it at our comic. So, Oh boy, we've missed the no, whole, I meant like, to say that they were uh, made by the time they were at the stand. So yes. We, so what were all the elements that, that logistics okay. of like getting ta- hot tacos there? I mean, it was a lot of, of figuring out the science behind the taco and how to hold hot hold breakfast tacos and transport them. I mean, I lost many nights of sleep, like so you, trying to figure that out. You're probably doing a lot of that during the catering. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. So you, we kind of set up, we figured out how to transport hot tacos for catering, but it was a little bit different because it, they then didn't have to be kept hot. Yeah. Which I think is another cool part about catering is like, you can change up every time you have a, a yeah. an event or a customer. I mean, the consistency is important, but yeah. you can tweak, yeah. you can fine tune your process to get to the point where now we know how to make breakfast tacos in bulk. Instead of bringing it to an event, we'll just bring it to a stationary stand. Yep. So you kind of figured that part of it out. Yep. And then the next part was logistics around where to be and when to be, I'm assuming probably played a big role into it. Yeah. Like how do we get the, the like, but so actually, so like the vans would deliver the tacos and the carts. Okay. So we had, um, them doing kind of dual duty. Um, and then like figuring out, sorry, figuring out, um, I'm trying to like think back. I remember there was a point that we we're like, we need a second van. I guess it was because the MSP, the Madison square park cart, but like there were definitely challenges with, with like the van had to get to financial district and then back to prospect and then go out and do any like catering deliveries. Um, but it was all kind of like links, links along the way that we were making of like, you know, okay, we can make the taco, we can deliver the taco hot. Okay. Now we have to make the taco, deliver the taco hot and keep the taco hot and sell the tacos, <laughs> then bring the cart back. And then it was like, okay, now for the retail partner program, like we have to make the taco, keep the taco hot, deliver it hot and teach someone else how to keep it hot. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and make sure that they're doing your brand justice and doing your food justice and things. But these were all like kind of, when it comes back to minimum viable product, it's, I look back and there's like, there's two choose your own adventures. Like you could have done it the way I did it, or you could have maybe like had a ton of money and just like hired someone yeah. to help you figure this out. But, but like, that's uh, not the way it happened. I, yeah. I feel like this way is so much better though. Cause this yeah. way is in reach for most yeah. people, whereas yeah. getting a bunch of money isn't in reach. And like the, the, the thing that excited me about you and seeing yeah. your story is that you chose to do it this way. Yeah. And I love this way. Let cash flow and people determine yeah. your growth. Do one thing really well yeah. and just start where you can. Yeah. And just, just go. Just start is the hard yeah. part. And also the branding around it too, which I, I saw that you're in advertising. Yeah. And I was like, There's going to be some lessons here. Yeah. Uh, but so 
before going into the, the the retailer program that you started, were you still at two carts or did two that carts? Scale? Yep. Okay. So, what was the evolution beyond that, and what what advice do you have for us in getting into retail? How did you break into that? Like, into the retail partners? Like, is, talk, is there a reason yeah. you waited a year, or is that how long it was? It took just how much I could handle. Like, okay. it was I didn't we didn't have an operations person until. <laughs> like or maybe mid 2018 right before the, the the I'm trying to think I you know it was it was me doing a lot of it so it was literally how much I could handle that so it kind of you know maybe hindered our growth a little bit or or just kind of made it made it made us keep it more manageable although at times it definitely seemed unmanageable and every year we were doubling or quadrupling our revenue but like it was just like we wanted to get the cart steady, build the cart business. We did a full year of carts and that helped us build our catering business. So those things are going like chugging along. We're increasing sales every month. We figured out carts and then we were like, let's add another, <laughs> let's add another element to this whole operation. Um, and, but that was, that was also part of the like original game plan. I knew that we wanted to be in coffee shops and cafes. I just needed to figure out the right time to do that. And I knew that without a brand, I had no leg to stand on like nobody was going to talk to me if they had no idea who we were i love it um so what was in your opinion um i like to use this analogy of like shifting gears right Mm -hmm. first gear was was catering second gear was Mm -hmm. carts third gear was wholesale Mm -hmm. every time you're able to do more volume right yep you're able to to, what was what was fourth gear what was the next thing for you was the was building our hq okay what so where's your hq we are in Prospect Heights um, in Brooklyn, and uh, it's in an old warehouse, a two-story warehouse that we um, that was basically gutted. It was just basically a box. So are we sitting in HQ right now? Yes, we are. Paint the picture of, of why this is HQ. What made this a good center for what you're trying to do? So when we were looking, so we after we were in the shared kitchen and we moved into a another commissary kitchen that existed but like wasn't built for us, I knew that in order, you know, we're talking about like how many rounds of tacos you can do how much production you can fit basically it we needed to expand um at this point you were using a shared space too we had stopped using a shared space in 2018 okay what are the challenges associated with that shared space yeah everything yeah everything (laughs) everything everything i am unstoppable but i won't i won't go back to a shared kitchen but that is not to say that you shouldn't start in a shared kitchen 100 percent, 100 percent. you should great lessons learned lessons learned about how I did not want to run my business um, and how to, yeah, just, I mean, I learned also, I should say the positives. There are people there who taught me a lot. Yeah. Taught me the, a There's ton. a great community associated. Yeah. It's literally a little mastermind. Like, yeah. It's a bunch of people with the same interests, same yeah. passion coming together. Everyone's putting out fires. I put that fire out last week. Yeah. Here's how I did it. Well, I'd had, it's the community associated with that is great. Yeah, no, it was, it was 100. It's just like college, like, you know, your freshman dorm, like you have so much fun, but by the end you're like I'm ready to move to my own apartment you know it's exactly it so um so we were in our own kitchen which felt like heaven and um we uh had but I knew like this was I guess it all was happening right before COVID 2018 well 2018 we moved but then like 2019 I was we were preparing to like we're gonna have to get out we don't really know we don't, we didn't, I was like, just starting to put, starting to put feelers out. I was like, I guess I have to get a broker and like figure out. Cause if we want to grow, I need a bigger distribution center. I need a bigger production space. I need offices and I need it to be built for us so that we can be as efficient as possible. So that like literally I can like 
pump out tacos as fast as possible so you, without without robots. There was a shared space. There was the space that you were in before moving to this space. Yes. And that's the space we're talking about. No, sorry. I, maybe I skipped. But shared space and then we sublet a space from friends that we had made in the industry, Hill Country okay. um, Barbecue. We sublet their Heard old... great things about them. Yeah. They're um, great barbecue. Um, they had an, a beautiful, a beautiful... Uh, I mean, it's small compared to what we have now, but like it was beautifully built floors pitched. Oh, so good. Like their, on their kitchen. top. Yeah. Top, top of the line work tables. Um, they, uh, so they weren't using it and we sublet that from them. So that was like for, from 2018 to 2020, we were there. What are some things if we're going to, whether it's going into a shared space or a subletted space, we're leasing the space. What are things to look for that you weren't aware of or things that somebody co- told you to keep an eye on? Floors. Okay. <laughs> look at the floors. I mean, what from, if you're renting a space for good, like for shared, it's just like cleanliness, but they're obviously not going to show you the side of not being clean when you're visiting. What should be included? Like how, like what's a good package? How do you know you're getting a good deal? Um, in retrospect, I would honestly, like there's a new company that's doing it called Nimbus and they're, it's, we wouldn't have been able to work there the way they have it set up, but I do like that they charge cheaper by the hour, but then they do charge you for storage. Yeah. Because I think that if you're not being charged for storage, then there's question over who has the most and whose storage is whose and whatever. So well, it's it's clarity is so important. Yeah, especially dry storage, especially refrigerators. Um, that, and that was kind of what I was hoping you would get yeah. into is are they including these things? Yeah. The, these thi- the- I honestly feel like it doesn't. I mean, you could maybe include a certain amount. I do feel like for us, like, you know, we have eggs which take up more room than someone who could have like, you know, pounds and pounds of dough or something yeah who knows like you might get penalized based on like what kind of food you have and maybe like you pizza could... that needs a proof right it takes up a lot of space in the refrigerator right i've heard a lot of people do it by the baker's rack yes that makes sense yeah yeah the yeah it depends they don't do it differently they didn't charge they do charge they did charge at ours for like extra but a certain amount was included but it was too wishy-washy mm. and rules were not enforced and it just created a lot of stress and headaches and lost product and people leaving walk-in doors open and tortillas going bad i don't know just to give yeah. a few examples would you believe we're already over an hour and a half of recording time? i i believe it it's crazy um how, i mean it goes I, it's by crazy I, yeah i'm like but you're like dig, making me dig deep into memories i'm like oh my god <laughs> it's kind of what, what i happened do. um but you're doing great man I'm, there's tons of value um but i mean I, it's crazy to think that we haven't even gotten into where what's we are. happening now yeah what's happening now um so uh, but that's just because i've been loving this conversation yeah. and drawing down i'm gonna here. just text someone to make sure that they leave tacos for you guys so let me let me do that real fast okay so you're we got to the point in your story it's 2018 2019 you, you got your we're, we're at hq we're in this physical space that we're sitting in now yes um where were you with your uh th- with your retail were you still at just two food carts at this point too um when in 20 20- when you moved into this physical oh, when we lived into this physical space, we had three cart. Well, HQ. technically two because it was COVID. We moved in here mid COVID, and Fidei had closed. Um, and then we had opened Madison Square Park in 2019, which is our third cart. Third, like you know, it's like the accident cart, <laughs> <laughs> like the baby that you said you wouldn't have, but you had anyway. Um, so not accident, blessing. Um, the uh, and so then we had our retail partner program had grown to like 25 locations right before COVID. And then that was just like decimated. So at this point, where was the majority of your cash flow coming from the retail partners? Um, before COVID. Yeah. 
the retail partners, the the carts were kind of still, they were about to be neck and neck. Okay. The carts were still driving most of our revenue. Three carts at this point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they were making up about 50% of your revenue and the other 50% was coming from Yeah, like 25. 60 to 70% of our revenue. Uh, I guess because catering, I'm forgetting about catering. 50 to 60, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, what was your strategy as far as scale at this point? What's going on internally in your head? Like what's next? Um, next was to to get, you know, as many tacos into as many stores as, as possible in different ways, refrigerated, frozen, um, and hot. So growing the retail partner program and just getting... Our, I found that like once our retail partner program had really taken off, especially with um, our multi-unit partners, like especially local ones like Hungry Ghost, we were, I would go to like parties and people knew our brand and it was almost embarrassing because I'm not really like a spotlight person. I'm like, I don't want to. Do you want me to let you know when this episode goes live? Yeah, I do. Every time I hear about it, I'm like, oh God, I'll watch it. Um, I enjoy it, but at the same time, you know, I'm a little bit, I don't know. Um, so, but it was, it was cool. And also like, holy shit, like, you know, we, our reach had expanded so much just because we're, people might not even have known that we had carts or like who I was or what the deal was, but they just loved our product and that, and they had found us cause we were in so many locations. So the next plan, like the immediate phase, next phase was to just expand our penetration of the New York market and, and the surrounding markets. And that's what we've focused on doing the last two years because it's a sustainable way to grow. It's totally scalable and it fills another need. Like all these coffee shops and cafes, especially with the way, um, the like food trends are going, people don't want to eat carb heavy in the morning. They want something that has more protein in it and they want something that they can feel good about eating like bagels. And a lot of our partners, like they say, like they used to sell hundreds of bagels and they sell like 10 now, Yeah, you know? So There's definitely habit changing going on right now. Yeah. So it, 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 it filled a real need. And just the more we saturated, it was because our mealtime is so different than anything else. It's like, you can have, a, a shop that sells KDT two blocks away from another shop because the person who goes to that coffee shop never will go yeah. to the other one. Yeah. Like their routine, that's not their routine. That's not their barista. That's not their thing. So it's not their block. Yeah. So yeah. right. And then New York, especially it's like you might live on one block and never go one block away just cause it's not on your path to the subway. Yeah. So, um, it was all built on this strategy of inser- inserting ourselves into people's routines and the best way to do that. Most people get their coffee from coffee shops. Um, and we wanted to be in all their coffee shops or go to their homes, which was, you know, further down the road. But we knew we had to build this lovely thing. I'm also a huge fan of centrific circle growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's another big lesson from look, look, look at Petey's in Austin. Yeah. Right. Like how many locations do they have in the city of Austin? Like Petey's. before Petey's Burgers. Oh, I don't know. Petey's. Petey's. Am I th- T- P. Terry's. P. Terry's. Jesus, thank you very much. I thought much. you were I was like Pete's coffee. Isn't there P. Pete's Terry's. pies here? P. I was like, where's the Pete's? Yeah, <laughs> P. Terry's. Thank you very much for correcting uh-huh. me. Um, but they, I think they were at like 26 locations before they moved outside of Austin. And yeah, it's like there's a lot place. of there's a lot of people that you don't even think you think you like you're like oh I've def I've done it all I'm in Prospect Heights. It's like no, there's like so many little I cities mean, inside the city. Exactly, and people won't even cross a bridge. But right. the, I think the idea is if you. The, the kind of enforce what you're saying is own a community within the yeah. greater city yeah. right? and the, people be a part of people's routines and make it accessible. And that's another yeah. thing that's really great about doing a couple things really well yeah. is it moves easier. It yes. scales easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back to what, again, one of the things that like doing two tacos, right? Yeah. Like when did you 
expand the menu? At what, how, at what point did that happen? Um, you have like to eight menu items now? Nine, nine tacos. Whoa, getting out of control. Yeah, <laughs> out of control. <laughs> there, and they all, but we only have four that go to our um, retail partners. Okay. Um, that's due to regulations, but um, but yeah, we expanded. I did chorizo, like I guess probably six months into catering. I felt like we had a, a enough momentum. Um, and then Migas, I introduced like for the carts because I felt like we needed a fourth. So you had four tacos when you had the carts Mm -hmm. and then when you got, when you went to brick and mortar, does that when you went crazy and doubled? Yes. Well, and then I added along the way I added a a vegan taco and that was to respond to some non dairy demand, um, within retail partners. We had the PEC, which we would make on the side. But then when we found out that like tacos are discriminated against (laughs) by the USDA and you can't wholesale tacos with meat. You can only wholesale sandwiches with meat. There's no food safety reason for that. I'll make a plug for there was a sandwich (laughs) lobby that got that through on a farm bill and somebody voted for it and didn't realize that it didn't make any sense. And now there's a whole discrimination against tacos, burritos, pitas and wraps. Anyway, we made a PEC an official um, menu item when we realized we couldn't, um, sell our meat tacos to our retail partners. So that gave them their a good, robust non-meat menu. And then, yeah, the three we add, that was six. So then the three we added um, later were for the opening of, of 611 Bergen. Beautiful. Um, so as far as scale, and I've, I mean, did I hear that right? You said 88 locations? 80. 80 80-ish. Yeah, we're 80-ish and we you know, keep, keep tagging them on. But yeah, we're at 80. So in three years, you went from one, your HQ, physical location this is your first physical location correct uh me yeah first brick and mortar that was a year ago a year ago so COVID, yeah COVID messed up timelines yeah. so we were at 25 decimated march 2020 everybody closed except for hungry ghost and then that's retail and coffee spot i should say coffee spot um that was retail partners yeah our carts closed prospect and madison reopened in summer 2020 um prospect park did was the driver of most of our volume everyone was home you were we sold a lot of tacos through that cart during covid retail partners started coming back um we moved here march 2021 and so just over a year yeah so i would say we were back at like 20 maybe like less than 25 retail partners at that point like it took us a year just to get back to pre-covid levels not even and then so since since then it's been like you know i guess four times four x that's crazy it's crazy so what's the strategy behind your your brick and mortar scale like if we will scale with brick and mortars so we have this physical the this uh hq the commissary where you produce all the tacos um, attached to this is your upstairs office where yep. we're sitting right now. And then there's a storefront yes. where there's a few seats outside and a, yep. like, like a, a small area inside yes. to order and get to do. Food. Yeah. To get is your grab and go. What most of your on-site locations look like today. Plus the three carts. So all of our on-site locations are other people's cafes. Okay. So they all, but they all look like that because they're basically coffee shops that then have what we have, which is essentially a hot holding equipment that sell our tacos. Okay. So we're inside of other people's stores. Got it. Um, so that's our, um, our brick and mortar scalable scaling strategy is to scale through other people's real estate. <laughs> Do you have, is this the only branded King David tacos? Besides our carts? Yes. Got it. Is there, is there plans to scale that? So, out? So to do more branded King David tacos, brick and mortar. I mean, I think like for the same reasons that we didn't do it in the beginning, we wouldn't do it 
um, in the future, like where we just have a bunch of freestanding King David tacos, where we would do it is when they're like fronts for what you see here, fronts for distribution. So when, when, if there's ever, I will say like, if we're ever just, unless we're in the middle of, you know, a f- airfield in like Illinois or something like this flying tacos all over the country, like there's no reason to not have a brick and mortar in front of it. If you can sell a few tacos and like, you know, it, the, the, you only need one person to service the counter. Yeah. Why not sell tacos out of the same place you're making and distributing the tacos? Yeah, but I've, I love the business model because I feel like it's there's such little overhead associated. Yeah, with it. there's but, a th- yeah. I mean, I don't, I won't. You know, of course, I would love everyone to believe that there's like no overhead. There is, but it's mostly related to like the kind of brain trust here that the operation team that is like running the day to day. Other than that, yeah. So if we're um, trying to replicate this model of mm-hmm. focusing on doing one thing really well uh, and using other people's brick and mortars to sell our product yep. through. What filter do you put your partners through? What things do you have to keep top of mind to partner with? Like, What are you doing? Will you partner with anybody who's willing to sell your tacos or are there things that... I mean, initially we probably were. I mean, there are people who I, ha- I, I targeted who I thought would better be better partners, but now definitely, you know, three, four years in to the retail partner program, I can kind of see like who's a better partner for us and not. And it does go back to that idea of trust and it's tough. You know, I we entrust a lot of our product quality into someone else's hands now. And so making sure that, you know, their operation is set up to handle our product, that they're going to, that their ownership believes in our product and is going to make sure that their employees like execute on, on the vision is an important part of it. And I've definitely learned a few lessons on like, you can sell tacos to anybody, but if they're not taking care of them, if they're not doing your product justice, then you won't be doing business with them for very long because the product won't sell. Mm. Um, and it ultimately does our brand damage. So I, we try to avoid those situations. There's not many, most people, most people who come to us and want to do business or seem like good people at the beginning, <laughs> at least. What are the things people don't take into consideration when they take this approach? The approach of using wholesale, basically putting your products in other cafes and markets. Hmm. What don't you consider? Um, Just I think you don't really appreciate the lack of control that you have. I mean, even like when our part with our partnership with Whole Foods, it's like I wish that I could go in there and just like adjust their, you know, their point of sale all the time. But I can't because I don't have the bandwidth, yeah. even if I could, you know, even if I could, they wouldn't want me to, or wouldn't let me, you know, but What's like, the issue with the point of sale? just like the, the way that the merchant, the way it's merchandised, okay. um, you know, you entrust, you, you want people to, again, do your product justice. Like you think about like how well things will sell on an end cap. And like, I think it does come down to like relationships also, because you're, I know people, in grocery or having to like, you know, work with the buyers to like get them the positioning on shelf and, and all those things make a difference. They make a difference from you looking like a throwaway brand to like, wow, this is a really heralded beautiful brand just because they like organized the bags nicely, you know? So I think that like the lack of control when you wholesale, like you can get someone to buy it, but like the in-store experience is going to be, it's going to be where you live or die. Mm -hmm. So is there anything up to this point? Cause now we're at kind of, present day where, mm-hmm. you, where you're at that we have not discussed that you were hoping to, to discuss that you think needs to be discussed. 
No, I mean, I like that, you know, you, you got a lot of info. I think it's good. I wish that people were more like, you know, nitty gritty, honest about stuff. Um, what do you mean with how we talk on radio shows? What is that? We- yeah. Like, I think that it's uh, when people get on interviews, they sometimes are just like, I made it. I did it. And it was great. And then it was a little bit challenging, but like we made it through the end. And it's like, okay. <laughs> Well, thank what you about very the much. dirty stuff? Um, <laughs> the, stuff the, the, the the less glamorous things. Make sure you tie your shoes when you stand up. By the way, oh, so I, I hate these shoes. Tiger. They keep untying. Um, yeah, let me think about what I mean. No, I mean the the only thing that I would want to say is you know the next thing for us is um, expanding beyond New York and figuring out how we do that. Whether it's um, I don't think that we need to be making tacos in every city that we're in, but making sure that we can distribute the same high quality taco to all of those cities is, is our next big challenge that we're figuring out. Um, so I'm excited for that. Um, but can that's we, kind of our next about making breakfast, uh, calzones right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have, them. I think they're called hot pockets. But every, no, there's not really good egg products on the, on the frozen market. And so that's what we're, we're looking to do um, something that, you know, you can feel good about reheating from frozen. People are doing it with our product already. We yeah. just got to, we have to get them a consistent way. So, you know, expansion beyond New York and figuring out how to utilize this, this HQ that we've not yeah. figuring out. We know how to utilize the HQ, but like preparing and, and building the next phase. Is- I think this model's hot right now. I think mm-hmm. it's super valuable, especially with fewer like your labor expense relative to other business models i'm sure is way down Mm -hmm. uh and there's that's a big challenge for the restaurant industry right now and there's um not to mention not just your labor expenses down but you're also helping other businesses keep their labor expense down. yeah i mean that's like outsourcing the the food yeah that's the main draw is that look you can add a, a balanced breakfast option with no labor yes and i think that's zero zero labor and i think that even people listening to this right now who have cafes mm-hmm. are probably thinking to themselves, I should find somebody who's doing something like this. In my find opinion. me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. Let's talk. Yeah. Um, there'll be an opportunity to, to share that contact information. Yeah. But, but let me ask you this. Uh, I, I like to echo the mission statement every yes. episode. It's to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. We're definitely feeling inspired. Zero experience in the food yeah. industry with a, the exception of that six months you did. Yeah. At the, you know, the like, hook. Three months, El Meat, El hook, meat hook, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, here you are today, you know, 80, your food's in 80 locations across New York. Yep. In a little, like a couple of years. Like, like that's so inspiring. We're Thank empowered. You. you shared so much information with us. I feel like I'm more intelligent now after talking to you. But on the subject of transformation, how have you transformed personally? Who are you today versus the woman you were when you got started? Yeah. You know, I like to think that I haven't changed that much and that I haven't lost and I maybe I, I should lose a little bit of my like, you know, <laughs> trust in people. Um, but I I think I um I'm definitely a more confident person. I think like, you know, when I think back to um at getting my first bank account with in in the LLC and I was like terrified, you know, it's like it was scary buying that scary is, is an understatement of buying that first van. And it's not to say like all of a sudden I'm more confident to do crazy things, but I guess I've become more comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm. Um, since then I've really learned to live in the discomfort and, and like, you know, 
be not just live in it, like be happy in it and understand that that's the nature of business. And honestly, um, I, you know, a lot of people talk about, I guess it's maybe cliche to bring up Danny Meyer, but I was recently listening to, to a podcast that he was on. And what show was he on? Um, I'm going to be I'm gonna have to, was it a restaurant podcast? Yes. Show? Oh man. I'm super but I'll have, I'll have to look. Basically he said his grandfather said that, you know, all businesses have problems. The businesses that succeed are the ones that solve their problems the best and have the most fun doing it. And that was like, I was like, ah, oh, okay, fine cool yeah, like yeah. <laughs> fine we got problems everyone problems, has problems aren't going away yeah problems are going away so just like learning yeah i think definitely I've, I've gotten more relaxed in like you know some not fixing things immediately like or just getting too fixated on fixing things like understanding that some problems need to you need to let them ride and some things need do need to be addressed in the moment get but comfortable like, being uncomfortable exactly because <laughs> yeah. it, it's not going away yeah You'll drive yourself crazy yep. trying yeah yeah comfortable yeah um i love this what about the what, again this this idea of transformation yes where's the industry now where do you think the industry needs to be what needs to change about the food the food and beverage industry i I mean, I feel sometimes I feel like a little bit of a of a poser talking about this because I don't come from the the food industry. So I'm like an outsider, kind of commenting on on decades and decades of ingrained things that I didn't personally experience. Um, but I think you know, definitely from the outside, there needs somehow there the expectation of respect on both sides needs to be reestablished um, from the employer. T- side and then also the if the employer can give that kind of respect i think hopefully employees will give that respect back like one of the things that still confuses me to this day is is no shows and um and people who like talk about walking out as like a thing i'm like you can't like like i understand that some some businesses i'm sure have done things to like cause people to walk out i know that they have and there's terrible mistreatment and 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 underpayment and all these kind of things but like those kind of I don't know there's just like no there's no trust there and I guess establishing that trust and we can only try to do it person by person day by day here but for the industry as a whole like reestablishing that trust in that relationship has got to be key and I think obviously in the age of the great resignation and all this stuff it's like not just the food industry now no one I guess nobody trusts anybody anymore but it's going to be a hard road if we can't yeah. find some common ground. Yeah, I don't have to add anything to that. Great stuff. Uh, one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we're going to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system to 
you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? One word to a sentence. I do not accept the status quo. (laughs) What is your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness is probably um, impatience. Mm. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? thing that I look for is um, the desire to uh, make things better and not, not accept the status quo. What is your biggest challenge today? Figuring out how to get out of my own way. Yeah, that's a tough one. How are you overcoming that challenge? <laughs> Day by day, step by step. <laughs> Is that your answer? <laughs> I think so. I mean, a lot of self-reflection I, and just trying to really open myself up to other people's feedback. Mm. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? A core value, a way to be. It's stupid because it's the golden rule, but treat others as you would want to be treated. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful one. Definitely yeah. not stupid for sure. Share one code. Sorry. Share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So this is something that you do at your food carts or in the brick and mortar locations where you have control to go above and beyond what's expected from the guest. I think like getting uh, the morning is such a personal time and some people share their families with us and their sh- their family's meal times. So, I mean, just like recognizing regulars and, and, honestly like having conversations with people like don't not being I never maybe I shouldn't but I never don't have really long conversations with strangers who like want to ask me a bunch of questions and things but I think making personal connections with with our um 
customers is, is, yeah, is one thing that I really like to do. And like, you know, have someone at the register who, who can chat people up, not just like, you know, you want to get through the line, but you want to also be able to have like a somehow an intimate conversation in like, you know, 20 seconds. Yeah. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner or food and beverage operator? I don't have a great answer for that one, but I do have one food book that I did read before I was in food, Blood, Bones and Broth mm. um, by the Gabrielle Hamilton. Yes. Yeah. It's a and about, yeah, about prune. And I know she got a lot of flack after the, you know, COVID for like writing. I don't know. Who knows? This isn't political. Here's the deal. She tells a lot of like, there's a lot of things she wrote in that book that still stick with me to this day, especially cleaning out all the rat poop. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like anytime I'm doing an unsavory task, I'm like, but what about that rat poop? And, uh, yeah, I just, she had a lot of great visuals in that book. And it also, she had, it was a, it was a kind of a, a tale of, you know, get to it iveness that was, was cool for, and I wasn't in the food industry yeah. at that time. And that book is on audio. I listened to that book on my first drive out to Chicago, like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on audio. So head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. If you're not leveraging the power of audiobooks yet and you're missing out, uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Oh God. Can I really comment on that? I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. I'll answer for you. Okay. I'm going for you. Focusing on one thing, just doing one thing. Really okay. Well. I think yeah. they focus more on ego and like trying to do the most and be the, like the everything to everybody yeah. at their own expense. Right. I mean, yeah, there's like, so I think certain kind of restaurateurs and that's where I think, honestly, I feel like I fail is like, I'm not a restaurateur at heart. Like I'm not like a, like I do love to be out and I'm like glad hand, but I'm also like, behind the scenes machine making, you know? So I, I wish sometimes I had a little bit more of that restaurateur ego. Right. Uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced. We've already mentioned one today. What was that? The, uh, cart developer. Oh yeah. The cart maker. Um, What's another one? one service that I've outsourced. I mean, our tortillas. There you go. Out of Austin, right? Yeah. Who are they? Uh, it's Fiesta tortillas. They're Jeez. a family owned. Um, company You're looking for some authentic tortillas make sure you reach out to fiesta and what is one technology you've recently developed and that you're leveraging within your business i mean the science of tacos <laughs> the science of tacos <laughs> yeah i mean temperature control um we definitely have some some tricks of the trade um are there, are you leveraging like a a software a software or a piece of um, like somebody else's that we use that we, that we love. I yeah. mean, yeah. So we're, that we would recommend Optimo route is a great routing software, a routing software yeah. to keep tacos warm. Well, no, sorry. That's separate. <laughs> um, but, like, but yeah, no, so it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it works. helps us. No, no, no. It's, are you asking for like, you know, something, a good a name of a good tech piece of a technology that we'd yeah, recommend something that you're doing that you're leveraging within your business to make your business more systematic, more streamlined. Uh, it could be anything from Google docs to like, any piece of technology that you're leveraging. I mean, always Google Docs. But yeah, Optimo Route is if you're looking for you know routing software, I would recommend it. Got it. And this is the last question. Are you ready for it? Yes. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work in your restaurants and your food carts and your, your, your uh, retail locations were lost with your, depart- with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Jeez, it's a lot of wisdom. I know. Um, take time off. One. 
Eat good food. Two. And don't be too hard on yourself. Three. I've loved this conversation, Liz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Who do you respect and admire? If you found out there are a guest on the show, you'd be absolutely tuning in to listen to that episode. <laughs> There's so many. List a few. Anyone who's talking about tacos, I'll always listen. So I know you've already had Taco Deli and Torchies on. I need to listen to those. I'll get them back on the show. Though. Yeah. <laughs> have a taco off. I'd like to <laughs> <laughs> taco talk. Um, Vital Farms, I think, would be uh, very interesting. I mean, that's, you know, they like started with a very small, you know, operation in Austin. Um, and it's not just Texans. Um, the Hoodoo Brown guys, I really think that they're cool. I don't know how they just keep all of their energy up and they make, they have great, a great barbecue restaurant up in the North and he's like dedicated to, to the craft. Um, and, um, yeah, is that enough? That's perfect. So that's Vital Farms and Hoodoo Barbecue. Hoodoo Brown Barbecue. Beautiful. Liz, thank you so much for You're taking the welcome. time to share your story, your knowledge, and your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. But if we do want to connect with you, what's the best way to connect? You can find us on Instagram. I'm still answering our DMs um, at King David Tacos. And uh, our website, kingdavidtacos.com, has all of our contact information. Beautiful. Again, I'll say it. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Liz Solomon Dwyer. And I love this story, this way of just kind of turning the industry upside down and challenging the status quo and and choosing different avenues rather than the traditional avenue of just being a standalone brick and mortar operation. Uh, She's finding a way to get her tacos into 80 different locations across the city in less than a couple of years. That's just amazing. So think outside the box, put your energy into streamlining systems and doing a few things really well. And I think that's just a recipe for success. And I, I don't know. I see it time and time again. There's, there's a pattern showing up here. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Liz. So great stuff happening at Restaurant Unstoppable. I've really just been slowing down, self-reflecting, trying to figure out what my core focus is and putting all my own energy into doing a few things really well. And for me, what I think I do really well and what I love to do, what, what makes me spring out of bed when I'm doing this is on-site interviews with amazing restaurateurs and thought leaders in the industry, sharing knowledge, making an example of these people, inspiring, empowering, and transforming the industry. That's what gets me going. And I think this is the best way I can do that, uh, leveraging my own strength. So I'm going to try to go to 100% on-site interviews. That's huge. That means better audio quality, better conversation in my opinion, and just better networking. And I'm super excited for the future. And we're going to be trying to take you guys on the road with me. And I'm really doing my best to put energy into our YouTube channel where we're going to uh, be doing higher quality video, maybe some behind the scenes stuff and who knows what else, but we need your support. Head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And uh, what else can you do? You can share this podcast with everybody and anybody, you know, you can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links and um, what else? Come hang out in restaurant unstoppable network. Things are a little slow there right now, but I do have plans to bring somebody on 
to focus solely on managing that community. So just be patient with us and thank you in advance. All right, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.